Our scripture reading today will be from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. This is the word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Am I on? Okay. We good? Okay. Um, pray with me one more time before we get started. Father, you are kind and you are good. Um, help me to be clear. Help your word to be sufficient for all that we need, Lord, though it be delivered uh, by a needy vessel. Lord, your word is complete and whole. Uh, Bless the hearer that we may learn to worship you and to love you for all that you have been to us and all that you are in being with us, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Now, I want to start off with a confession to you all, okay? Um, This may make me some enemies, even among my own house, but I am prepared for those ramifications. I prefer Star Wars to Marvel. Okay. Um, See, I believe that if you have time to kill, Star Wars is a better destination to hang out than is the Marvel universe, right? Um, We all know that the... Star Wars Cinematic Universe, or SWCU, as I'm going to call it, um, we know that it is not evenly enjoyable, right? There are several different opinions about the enjoyability of the movies, but we can all agree that The Last Jedi is the worst ever made, right? Period. Um, But one of the best things, one of the greatest things about Star Wars, in my opinion, is that it picks up in the middle of the story, right? You start... In episode four, and uh, now nobody knew that at the time. People in the in the late seventies, um, I wasn't around then, but some of you were. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, some of y'all saw it in the theaters, and none of y'all knew that it picked up in the middle of the story, right? You all thought that it was, it was, you know, hey, this is new, this is real, this is right now. Um, but 
you didn't feel like you were missing anything, right? A New Hope told you enough backstory that you were able to to understand the story. You were able to get enough out of the story, right? Um, there's one scene, in fact, where the emperor is talking to uh, Darth Vader, and he says, you know, this new disturbance in the force, he is the son of Anakin Skywalker, right? And so you're, you're seeing this. You're seeing this in theaters. You're like, oh, that's, that's interesting. You know, that's cool. Hey, same last name. But that doesn't mean anything to those people. But for those of us who've been able to follow it all the way through, it means everything, right? It means something significant that Anakin Skywalker has produced this force disturbance, right? Um, and so there is an argument that could be made that the original trilogy is complete and it needs nothing else. Now, and I can get on board with that. Uh, I don't count the sequels at all. Um, but I can get on board with that were it not for one thing, and that's context, right? See, as regrettable as the prequels may be, they provide a richer understanding of the story. And so you, by understanding it better, you get a greater joy in it. Or to say it another way, in order to truly get the most out of the original trilogy, you have to understand the prequels. You have to understand all of the story going forward. And so they provide a framework and it lays a foundation to fully understand the story. They, they fill in, they provide the outline that the original trilogy fills in. And see, that's comparable to the Gospels because the Gospels pick up in the middle of the story. We can understand the story. We can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. We can come to a revelation of Christ. We can understand that Christ came to die for sinners. But if we look back over the ages of recorded history in the Old Testament, then we can come to a more full, a greater understanding of salvation, of the history of God's loving his people. See, we come to this understanding and it gives us a greater joy because we can see that God loves his people. He makes promises to his people and then he keeps those promises. And that brings us to our text because a major theme in Matthew's gospel is fulfillment. He takes Old Testament passages, Old Testament prophecies or shadows and types, and he shows how they are fulfilled in the person, in the work of Christ. And generally, he sets it apart in the scriptures with a phrase like the one in our text. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. See, when we look at Matthew's intent in these fulfillment passages, we see that as the ESV study Bible puts it, his gospel is an evangelistic tool aimed at his fellow Jews, persuading them to recognize Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah. So he takes all of these well-known passages and he shows them. He's pointing out to the Jews that the Christ is the point and purpose of the whole Old Testament and that Jesus is this Christ. And our text is no exception to that. I'm going to read it again. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, 
resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, now it's easy to look at this text and from a strictly chronological point of view and say, we know, yeah, obviously it would come first. Birth narratives tend to come first. But I believe that it's much, much deeper than that. I believe that Matthew brings us to this point, brings his original readers to this point, to provide a framework for understanding the rest of his gospel. See, not only does it come first chronologically, but it sets the stage theologically for understanding his gospel. Um. So Matthew writes evangelistically, meaning his purpose is the conversion of the Jews. So he begins with this promise of Emmanuel. He begins with this promise of God's presence with his people. And see, but when we look at the context of this promise, and when we look at the context of Emmanuel, we see that Matthew means, well, we will see what Matthew means when he uses Emmanuel, this promise of Emmanuel, to describe and to to point to Christ's birth. And we'll see also what God means for us when we look when Matthew uses Emmanuel, when we read Emmanuel. So if you would please turn to Isaiah chapter 7. And so before we get to the actual text, um, a little background on King Ahaz is needed. We learn from the account in Second Kings chapter 16 that uh, Ahaz is not a godly king. In fact, an allusion to his kingship, uh, chapter 16 verse 3 says, He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Uh, that is not a good description of King Ahaz. Um, you don't want to be likened to the kings of Israel. Um, Judah had a couple of good kings. Israel didn't have any. That's why they got overtaken first. That history lesson's free. Um, okay, so into Isaiah 7. We're going to read verses 1 through 2. The days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the, uh, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So Ahaz is king of Judah, and two nations, Syria and a tribe of Israel, have gathered in league against him, and he is afraid. The text points out that he is exceedingly troubled by the news that he has received. So God sends Isaiah to him, down in verse 4, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia, down in verses 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand... It shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, 
and the head of Damascus is resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. See, he doesn't stop there, though. He doesn't just promise deliverance. He doesn't just promise that these people will cease to be after a period of time. He invites Ahaz to ask a sign for completion. He asks a sign for that this will be, that this will come to pass. In verse 11, he says, to ask a sign as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz declines to ask for a sign. In verse 12, but Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. See, God in this moment is commanding Ahaz to ask for a sign for completion. He's, at, he's at commanding Ahaz to ask a sign that this will be done. Ask for a sign. I will show you that this will come to pass. Uh, and Ahaz is trying... Is, uh, you know, Ahaz sounds very pious. He sounds very reverent because Moses spoke in Deuteronomy six sixteen that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him as Massa. So Ahaz is trying to come across as reverent. See, but what we read in Second Kings 16 is that Ahaz was so distraught by the news of the impending siege of this, these two, uh, two kings who have come against him he was so distraught that he sent messengers to the king of Assyria for help, right? And this wasn't a formal meeting between two nations. He didn't come to Assyria as an equal. He sent a political envoy, but also, as we read further in 2 Kings 16, Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house, and sent a present to the king of Assyria. So far from being pious and reverent, Ahaz is sending treasures from the temple. He's sending these vessels that have been de dedicated to the Lord. He's sending these things to Assyria, asking for help. He even calls the king of Assyria his father. And so Ahaz is not being reverent in this moment. He's being wicked. As one commentator says of this passage, it's like a mouse being attacked by two rats and asking the cat for help. So what is God's response to this insolence? So Ahaz, king of his people, is being wicked, is being rebellious. And so what is God's response? In, verse, in Isaiah 7, verses 14 through 16, we read, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. By the time he knows enough to reject evil and choose good, he will be eating curds and honey. For before the boy knows enough to reject evil and choose good, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. To reject evil and... That's a repeat. Uh, God would be just and righteous to overthrow King Ahaz. Right? God would be just to bring ruin on his people for their king's wickedness. But God, who is rich in mercy, chose to be gracious to King Ahaz. Rather than wash his hands of the kingdom of Judah, uh, he still promised deliverance. He promised them deliverance and he sealed it with a sign. 
but not just any sign. He promised them deliverance with the sign of a child born. The sign of Emmanuel in Isaiah is a promise of deliverance. See, the child's birth stood as confirmation that God's promise of deliverance would be fulfilled. The child stood as surety for Judah's deliverance. The birth of this child was a tangible reminder that God keeps his promises. So is this sounding familiar at all? That God gives a command and man rebels against this command. And rather than justice, God responds in mercy. Is this sounding familiar at all? This is Genesis 3 repeated. See, because Adam and Eve chose disobedience over obedience. And in doing so, they rejected God. They turned their back on God. And instead of justice, and instead of the justice that God's character commanded and demanded, God acted in mercy. In Genesis 3.15, God also promises a child. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, this child that God promises in Genesis 3 is one who would deliver his people from their enemy. And so we learn from the beginning who our real and true enemy is. It is the deceiver. See, this is called the Proto-Evangelium, or the first proclamation of the gospel. And so the Proto-Evangelium is foreshadowed in Emmanuel. The seed born to the woman would deliver Adam's race from the deceiver. And Emmanuel was the sign that God would deliver his people from the hands of Rezin and Ramalia. See, these are two prophecies about a child being born as both surety of deliverance and the means by which it was accomplished. See, Matthew brings his readers to this fulfillment passage first to orient their minds around Christ as the true fulfillment of both. Matthew is showing his original audience that Christ is the point and purpose of the Old Testament that he is the true Emmanuel, and that he is the one who will crush the serpent's head. See, we can see in our text that Christ is the true fulfillment of Emmanuel, truly born of a virgin, virgin, uh, in verse uh, 20 through 21a. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. We can see in our text that Christ is the true fulfillment of the Proto-Evangelium, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will deliver his people from their sins. See, in their their original contexts, each of these promise a child who will mark deliverance for God's people. We can see in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus is the true fulfillment of both, and he is the fulfillment of the Proto-Evangelium by his being, Emmanuel. Christ, the virgin-born Son, who will deliver his people from their enemies, sin and death, does so by triumphing over the one who has the power of sin and death, the serpent. See, Matthew begins his gospel by coming here first, not only because it is first chronologically, but because seeing that Jesus is Emmanuel, that he is the seed who crushes the serpent's head, 
is the whole point of the scriptures. God promises future redemption literally in the world's infancy. And then he spends thousands of years foreshadowing that deliverance with prophecies and shadows and types. See, that allows us to look into and beyond the stories such as the fall in Ahaz and see Christ. See, we see that what resulted in Adam and Eve being expelled from the garden wasn't inherent in the fruit. It was sinful disobedience. We see that Ahaz's biggest problems were not resin and Ramalia, but were his sinful heart and doubt and distrust. See, if we follow these stories to their end, we see that Adam and Eve and Ahaz all bore punishment for their sins. But that doesn't annul God's promise for deliverance. They just needed deliverance from a bigger and deeper enemy. In the Old Testament, the biggest issues that God's people faced were themselves and their sinful hearts. See, Matthew brought them here to show them that God fulfilled his promise of deliverance from the deepest issues his people faced. And to prove it, he shows them the child. See, and we are like them. Our biggest enemies are not politics. They are not familial problems. They are not social issues. Our biggest problems are sin We read in Ephesians 6.12 that for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, we live in a world full of pain and suffering, and that tempts us to fear and to doubt. And fear and doubt cause us to sin in thought and word and deed in an effort to try and make it better. See, we try to cover up our sins like Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together. We try to find help in all the wrong places like King Ahaz. We seek for political uh, solutions to the sins that we face. We long for cultural narcotics to to dull the pain that sin brings. We call to those who will enslave us for deliverance. All the while, God is holding out His hands to us and imploring us to trust Him. See, God has promised deliverance for His people, and He has given us a child. Beloved, though we face trials and tribulations, pain and sorrows, let us look to the child He has given for the deliverance that He has promised. Pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for Ahaz, or for Emmanuel. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the examples that you have given us of people who, like us, failed to trust you and you responded in grace. Uh, we pray, Father, for, the, for this season, Lord, that we would be safe, that we would be trusting. Lord, we pray that you would continue to love us and to be with us as we go. Help us to love and worship and honor you as King, as our God. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for this day. In Jesus' name, amen.